verses. So Hebrews chapter 4, beginning with verse 1, we're going to be reading through verse 11. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us, just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them, because those who heard did not combine it with faith. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said, so I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. And on the seventh day, God rested from all his work. And again, in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. It still remains that some will enter that rest, and those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. Therefore, God again said, set a certain day, calling it today, when a long time later he spoke through David, as was said before, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests for his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. This ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Walter was in a group of lieutenants. Walter was a lieutenant, and he was in a group of lieutenants who was being trained on an airplane by a crusty old sergeant who didn't have the highest regard or the highest view of lieutenants. And the sergeant kept a very respectful tone as he was training them on how to bail out of an airplane should an emergency arise. And so say he was explaining to them about the, the escape hatch, and he said, Sirs, I want you to open the hatch. Uh, you turn this lever to the right, and then you pull the, ham- uh, the, the uh, handle. And you got it? And so one of the second uh, lieutenants said, um, Sergeant, what happens if we don't follow that, that sequence? And the sergeant very patiently said, well, then you hit the hatch handle with this crash axe. And the lieutenant replied, will that open the hatch? And he said, no, but it'll keep your mind very occupied as you guys are crashing into the ground. So, yeah, it's kind of a, it's a true story. And, um, you know, it's kind of an amusing s- uh, story that, that uh, reminds me of a very sober reality. And that many people that I talk to, I, um, I'm a pastor who counsels, I'm a shepherding and counseling pastor at Westminster, that a lot of people that I talk to are just emotionally spent. They're emotionally overdrawn. They, um, they're bone weary. They're worn down. They feel like they're hacking away at their problems in life, and their problems won't budge, much like that handle the sergeant was talking about. They feel like that um, there's got to be an escape hatch in life somewhere, but they just can't find it. Do you ever feel like that? I know some parents who have a little rebellious child in their home, and 
And they think, you know, they, they have this resolve to out-love this child until the, the child's resistance just kind of wears down. And that's a beautiful thing. But sometimes they think in life that perhaps um, this child's rebellion will outlive their love. I have another friend of mine that was facing surgery, and there was um, a one out of a 500,000 chance of a certain type of complication that would come out of this particular surgery, and um, she got the complication. Where do you find rest in those situations? Where does she find rest in, in that, that, that physical struggle that she has? You know, if all we needed was physical rest, then the Bible would say, thou shalt take a nap. And if all we needed was emotional rest and healing, then the Bible would probably say somewhere in it, uh, thou shalt take a, a, a vacation, or thou shalt find a good therapist, even though there's nothing wrong with that. But where do we go for spiritual rest? Ever thought about that? Where do we go to find that ultimately deeply satisfying rest that our souls long for? How do we seek refuge regarding the deepest life problems at the deepest heart levels? The writer of Hebrews is writing to uh, uh, Jewish Christians, as Carlos has been preaching through and talking about. And uh, these Christians have been hammered. They have been harassed. Many of them have had their, their property confiscated by the civil authorities and ecclesiastical authorities, and um, they're discouraged. They're beat down. They're worn down. The question for them is a question for us, is how do we find this refuge? How do we find this rest for the, from the, uh, the deepest life issues at the deepest heart levels, the rest that our souls long for, the rest that our hearts seek? Well, let's look at the text. I want to kind of look at the text in three components to answer that question. The first answer to that question is uh, we need to look at the warning regarding rest. There's a warning that comes right out of verses 1 and 2 regarding rest. Let's look at the uh, passage again. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, there's still a promise out there of rest, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard did not combine it with faith. There's a warning here. And chapter 4 opens with a warning based on Israel's tragic, miserable failures in the wilderness wanderings. They had heard the good news proclaimed to them in the Old Testament. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. But twice in this passage, in verse 2 and verse 6, we, hear, we, we see the word gospel in the NIV. If you're following along in the ESV, it says the good news. The word gospel is used in the New Testament, and it literally means good news. And um, this good news uh, to these Jewish Christians was of no value to them or little value to them because they didn't receive the good news in faith. Now, the word good news can be described in various ways. It can be described narrowly or broadly, but just kind of in a general sense, the gospel or good news refers to God's way of salvation, God's saving work from start to finish, from top to bottom, 
from A to Z. It's God's saving work, His saving ways. And a lot of times, you know, we kind of limit the word gospel or the term gospel, the concept gospel, to how we enter the Christian life. And after we enter the Christian life, we think, you know, well, the gospel is for unbelievers or new believers, but certainly not for me as a mature believer. But Christians need the gospel as much as non-Christians. In fact, the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans uh, calls the gospel the power of God. He says the gospel is the power of God, and he's addressing, believe it or not, Christians. So the gospel shows us that our spiritual problem lies in a natural impulse that we all have to be our own Savior through our performance, through our achievement, or through our own wisdom. And let me tell you, that's exhausting. It's exhausting. And God is calling us to rest. Believe it or not, the Old Testament Israelites, the people of God, had the gospel. You say, well, in what way or in what form? Well, Joshua, who uh, was a general that followed Moses and, and led the people into the promised land, preached the good news to them, according to the writer of Hebrews. They had the good news. The good news was that the promised land was theirs for the taking, that God was going to save them and had saved them from the bondage of Pharaoh, from the bondage of Egypt, and that God was continuing his sa saving ways. In fact, in the, uh, in the book of Numbers, um, uh, the gospel is, is um, explained like this. You know, there's the enemies out there in Canaan, and we're going to swallow them up. In the Hebrew, that literally means that the enemies out there, they're going to become bread for us. If you translated it maybe into our vernacular today, um, what they're saying is that the God who delivered us from the evil hand of Pharaoh, from the, all, from the very powerful hand of Pharaoh, okay, these enemies, for God, piece of cake. They'll become bread for us. They'll become cake for us. God can do it. And you know what the response of the Israelites was? God's out of his mind. We're out here. The wilderness is, is horrible. Uh, we're tired. We're worn down. We're weary. And God is out of their mind. And they're forgetting, you know, this is absolutely amazing considering the fact that God saved them from 400 years of bondage and slavery. And you should have seen the celebration after God took them out of Egypt, set them apart, destroyed the, uh, the armies of, of, uh, uh, of Egypt. You should have seen the celebration that took place. I mean, this was no Presbyterian worship service. There was singing, there was dancing, there was a great party going on. They were singing this word, the horse and the rider fell into the sea. God did it. He rescued us. He delivered us. He destroyed our enemies. He had pity on us. That's good news that we can preach to our hearts. And all of those people that were dancing in the wilderness and singing the horse and rider fell into the sea. None of them entered the promised land. Not much later after that celebration, that great worship service, they shook their fist at God. And they said, why in the world did you bring us into the wilderness? Egypt was much better. They quit. They would not believe the good news. They did not enter God's rest. If you think about it, you think about this warning in a greater context, you see that this was the promise, uh, the problem, rather, of our first parents, Adam and Eve. God made Adam and Eve, and they were at rest in the Garden of Eden, if you think about that. They had God's provision. 
They had God's uh, presence. They were security in life. They had everything they needed. I mean, there wasn't anything in life that they needed. God provided companionship with each other. And um, they were in such peace that the Bible said that they were naked yet unashamed. That's what kind of peace they, they had. That's what kind of rest they were experiencing. But they came to the point in their life where they believed that they could do life better without God. And the moment they chose to not believe God, they hid, they made fig leaves, they disbelieved. Why? Well, the Bible said that they were filled with shame. They believed that they could make their own way and that they could prove their own worth. And there's a nagging voice like a toothache that just kept plugging them after the fall that says that you're worthless, you're worthless, you're worthless. So every day you and I set out, and say, set out to say to the world, you know, I can prove my own worth and I can make my own way. And one of the ways we think that, that we can do that is through our what? Through our work. We can think, you know, through my work, whatever it is, whether I'm a student or whether I'm retired and I'm engaged in some type of work in the community or around the house, or uh, I'm still employed and I still have a vocation or a career, uh, we think, you know, I can, I can prove my own worth and I can make my own way through my work. And maybe for some people, uh, it's to have nice things. And there's nothing inherently wrong with having nice things. And perhaps for some people, it's to, to, make, to have a title, some kind of title attached to their name, maybe doctor or director or, or administrator, some, some nice title. Or maybe it's just simply because you want to do some nice things to do some good so that it will tell you that you're not a nobody. Remember the uh, movie Rocky? I know that kind of dates me. It's one of my favorite movies. I know they're kind of cheesy, but I like all the Rocky movies, and I like the music, kind of motivational. And uh, you remember what, you know, Rocky was, he was uh, driven to go the distance with Apostle Creed. Why? So that he, what did, what did he say? He wanted to go the distance with the Apollo Creed because, because what? So that he could prove to himself that he's not a what? I'm not, come on, Rocky fans, that I'm not a bum. Okay? There's nothing wrong with hard work, but the problem is often why we work. What about, on the flip side, what about Apollo Creed? Um, uh, that he tried to silence that nagging toothache, that, that silent voice that says, you're worthless, you're worthless, you're worthless. How did he do that? By going the distance with Rocky? No, by shameless self-promotion and by criticizing others. You know, if I could just mash other people down, I can silence this inner voice. And we work and we work and we toil and we toil and we live out our unbelief and we are restless to the core of our being. The writer of Hebrews is saying, guys, don't miss the good news. That is his, that's what he's saying to the original audience and to whom he's writing. And he, that's what he's saying to us today. He's saying, guys, let's, don't miss the good news. Now let me give you the Reader's Digest of the bad news. The bad news is he's writing to a Jewish audience, people with Jewish origins, and people that were alienated from God. And the temple, as glorious as it was, and the Mosaic law, as stately as it was, and the Levitical priesthood, as awesome as it was, could not remedy this problem. 
But the good news is that all of those things point to and are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The good news is that he lived the perfect life that we could not live, that we could never live. And he offered himself as not only the, the priest, but the sacrifice to pay the debt for our sin that we couldn't pay. So the gospel here is the end of all human ability to try to validate ourselves. And we exhaust ourselves in trying to validate ourselves. Here the writer of Hebrews says, hey, the promise of rest still stands. Don't miss it. It's in the gospel. So the first thing we see uh, this morning is that there's a warning. There's a warning regarding rest. But the second thing I want you to see is the nature of rest. What is this rest like? What is its character? What is its nature? We see this in verses 3 through 5. If you'll take uh, your Bibles and look with me in verse 3 through 5. We're looking at the nature of rest. The writer writes, Now we who have believed entered that rest, just as God has said, So I declared an oath in my anger they shall never enter my rest. And yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words, and on the seventh day God rested from all his work. And again, in the passage above, he says, they will never enter my rest. You know, this is a very confusing passage. Thanks, Carlos, for assigning me this passage this morning. <laughs> but in these verses 3, 4, and 5, there's, there's a picture of the nature of rest. And uh, what does this rest look like? Well, first of all, I want to say emphatically that God is passionate about his children's rest. He's passionate about your rest. You may not think it and believe it if you're toiling and moiling and churning inside, but God is passionate about your rest. You know, and I have a friend of mine at the gym who uh, works for a cardiologist group, but he does sleep studies. And, uh, you know, people who study sleep patterns will tell you you can catnap all you want. You can take all the Sunday afternoon naps th th that you like. Uh, but what you really need is what? You need deep REM sleep. Um, you need quality sleep. And that's what, um, that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying here in this passage. He's actually quoting some passages from Psalm 95 here. And he's kind of interacting with that passage. And, and the point here of interacting with Psalm 95 is not just to highlight the failure of Israel as a warning, but to highlight the reality of rest that God offers. To highlight the reality of rest that God offers you. The rest that God offers you in salvation is the very, this blows me away, listen carefully. The rest that God offers us in salvation is the very rest that God has enjoyed since the completion of his creation. That's what he's inviting you to the very rest that he enjoys since the completion of his creation. You know, think about this. If you go back to Genesis, you know, in the uh, creation passage, the creation uh, account ends with this phrase over and over, morning and evening, morning and evening, morning and evening, morning and evening. It goes on until it finally says, and then God rested. Now, this doesn't mean that God took a, a cosmic vacation from the universe. This doesn't mean that God is detached from your life, that he's on vacation from your life. But I think it's captured in one commentary uh, writer who wrote on this passage really captures this rest that God is offering us when he says this. The picture here is that after God carefully ordered creation to his exact specifications, he enthroned himself without effective opposition. 
His reign of rest is of absolute supremacy and of unassailable sovereignty. So even though God is actively involved in his universe, he's at rest. There's no effective opposition. His, rest of, his reign of rest is of absolute supremacy and unassailable sovereignty. What does that mean? What does that mean for us? In other words, by his spirit, he's at work in your life. By his spirit, he is actively at work in my life, in my church, in this church, in this congregation, in your household. He is sovereignly accomplishing his good purposes. And when you enter the Sabbath rest through faith in Christ, you can stop worrying about whether or not you're going to endure to the end. You can stop worrying whether, whether you, or not you have a place in eternity. Of course you have a place in eternity. You can stop worrying that what might happen to you. You can stop worrying because he has established his plans for you before the foundation of the world. And he will not let go. I have a friend of mine who vacationed a few years ago in Bryson City, North Carolina. We, um, I don't even know if our kids remembered uh, one of our first camping trips as a family was very close to Bryson City, North Carolina. And uh, my friend of, my, a friend of mine, was, he was tubing down a river, and uh, he had a five-year-old, and there were a few waterfalls and a few tricky spots. And so he didn't want his five-year-old to have her own inner tube, so they just shared one of the big inner tubes together, and they were having a great time. But they got to one of these tricky parts. You know, it's kind of a lazy uh, summer afternoon. And they got to one of these tricky parts, and they tripped over, and it was a very sobering moment because uh, they both went down. They were pinned underneath by the, uh, by the water, and my friend actually hit his head on the rock underneath the water surface. But just instinctually, he reaches out and he grabs his daughter in this vice grip of desperation and he just latches onto her as he's struggling to get to the surface. And then he, he takes her uh, to the shore and she's just, uh, you know, he fishes her out and she's just sputtering out water. She's just spitting out water. And as the last gulp of water comes out, she said, Daddy, I held on to you and saved you. <laughs> And I think that when we close our eyes in death and we open them up and we see the face of Jesus, we might say to Jesus, Jesus, I made it. I held on to you. I, I fixed my eyes on you. And I suppose Jesus will be kind enough not to laugh. And he's going to reveal to us, you know, I held on to you. And every time you went under, I held on to you. And I've always held on to you. Richard Phillips says in this amazing comment about God's saving rest, he says, salvation rest, listen to this, is living in God's presence, feeling the warmth of his love, and trusting the strength of his hands to hold you forever. There's not a deeper rest that you can find on planet Earth. So already the uh, writer of Hebrews tells us, you know, if you're going to experience this rest, if you're going to have this deep rest that God intends for you, you've got to heed the warning and you've got to consider the nature of God's rest that he holds out for you. But the third and last thing I want you to see is the availability of rest. Maybe you're starting to think, you know, Dan, I'm starting to buy in on uh, this, 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 this idea of rest that God that has for me. But you know, what's the supply level? You know, it's just like me. I, I run to the store to get my favorite product and it's not on the shelf. 
What's the availability of this rest? Well, we see the availability of the rest uh, in verses 6 through 11. Take your, your Bibles and follow along. Verse 6. This is good news. It still remains that some will enter that rest, and those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. Therefore, God again set a certain day, calling it today, when a long time later he spoke through David, as he said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another rest. There remains, here's the supply, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. Let's unpack that a little bit. Some of the Jewish Christians were, were still so disillusioned. The writer of Hebrews had to persuade them over and over and over with various arguments. And they thought, you know what, this is nice, but there's no rest available for me. Nope, nope. Maybe there was rest available to the Israelites out in the wilderness, and they didn't take it. And maybe uh, there, were some, there was rest offered through the words of David in the day in which King David lived and penned these nice words from Psalm 95. But, um, but for us, nah, it's not available. I'm still to toiling and moiling in my heart. But the writer is emphatic here, and it's, it's almost staccato-like. He's driving home a point. The word rest occurs five times in this, this passage we just read. Rest, 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 rest. Uh, he wants us to get the point. And one of the reasons that we, are, you know, um, that we still honor Sunday today as a day set apart is that it is a sign that points to an ultimate rest to come where there is no more sickness, there is no more sorrow, and there is no more sin. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine a day when you are unable to sin? Think about that. It's glorious. At present, we struggle, don't we? We have a lot of struggles in our life. Don't we? we struggle against sin. We struggle against temptations that come our way. And we struggle against suffering. Everyone in this room suffers in some way. And Jesus didn't sugarcoat life when he said, you know, in this world, right before his departure, he said, in this world, you will have many troubles. But then he says, take heart, for I've overcome the world. I'm not leaving you. I am not letting go. I had a friend of mine who died, um, I guess it's been two years now, and Richard was a very unique guy. He was um, a Marine pilot in Vietnam. He was highly skilled and highly trained. He went on special operations all over the world that he couldn't share and talk about. And he was the most highly trained hair, uh, helicopter and air, uh, pi uh, airplane pilot in, in our country. In fact, when the, hurt, uh, the um, earthquake in Haiti hit, he was the first one to touch down uh, by plane. He had, a, he had um, many dangerous missions that he went on. And um, I was talking to some of his friends who went on some of these missions. And he said, you know, Richard always had a motto. Every time that he put us down on the ground and he had to fly away and get more troops or supplies or do reconnaissance or whatever, he had this phrase that we could always bank on. You know what his phrase was? Leave no man in the zone. 
he made good on it every time. I will leave no man in the zone. Jesus says it a little differently. Jesus says later in the book of Hebrews, he says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, never, 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 even when life hammers you the hardest, he will keep you, and one day he will make all things new. And that's the point of verse 10. I can't let you go without exploring verse 11 because verse 11 seems like, it seems like it contradicts everything that we just said. Because verse 11 says what? says, for big conclusion, drum roll, make every effort to enter that rest. In the SV it says, strive. You're thinking, ah, I knew there was a catch. There's no, what is he saying? He's saying this, there's no contradiction. He's saying, you know what? You enter the salvation rest by faith. You are to press through the life's difficulties by faith not complaining of difficulties, not hardening your hearts against him, but valuing And we work and we minister with the resources of his grace, his rest, his power, because you are deeply satisfied in your Savior. John was restless. He was miserable, in fact. He, um, at first, he didn't blame God for his problems. He was very careful not to do that. Uh, but after a while, you know, he was, he was quick to blame his job, his demanding boss, his disloyal clients, and the bad economy. But after a time, he began to drag God into the courtroom of his mind with various questions of, of God's goodness for him. And he went on a missions trip um, that his wife kind of talked him into in America. And um, there, the guys were, would get in these Jeeps and they'd go up the mountainside to do this, this uh, kind of this dangerous construction. And uh, some of the youth, teenagers, kids, and the women were, came back, kind of went to these vacation Bible schools. Well, he has a bad back, which didn't help his life make, make anything any easier. And so he couldn't take the, the bumpy Jeep ride. Just couldn't do it. So he's like, all right, all right, God, I'm going to stay back and help with vacation Bible school. But it's interesting in his testimony that he said that uh, as he was listening to the simplicity of the gospel. That the sovereign, he started to realize that the sovereign God who stood behind his thorn-infested job and his backache and the problems that he was facing was a loving father who was using these trials to reveal his unbelief. And he began to think about this and he began to, to marinate in the promises of God and the, the calling of Jesus. And he goes back to his office. He'd taken 10 days of vacation. And he's describing this to an unbelieving coworker. He said, well, what was it like? What was South America like? What did you do? Did you go like, parasailing and surfing? And, you know, I bet you it was awesome. And he said, no. <laughs> we got up early and uh, uh, we ate rice and stuff. And, and we worked all day and we took cold showers. And the guy said, man, you took 10 days off for that? doesn't sound like a, rest, a restful vacation. And he goes back that night and he writes these words in his journal as he's just reflecting on the beauty of Jesus and the power of the gospel. He writes in his journal, I never felt so rested in my life. John found the rest that his soul longed for. It's in the gospel. How about you? Perhaps you've realized for the first time uh, today that you need a relationship with God and uh, When's the best time for that? The text is 
is very, very plain about this. Twice it says, the time for that is today. Today, you can trust Christ for the forgiveness of sins. You can receive a new record, and you can enter his rest. And for all of us, Jesus stands ready with his invitation. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden and broken, and you'll find rest in me. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we thank you for these promises. These promises are true. We thank you for the promise of rest that you offer. Father, we pray that the truth that is in Jesus Christ will illuminate us, in us, all that is dark. That you will establish in us all that is wavering. And that, Father, by faith, we will grab a hold of you. That we will experience the rest that our souls long for. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.